Career Podcast Series that features conversations with professional creatives from the arts, entertainment, and media industries, where we expose our listeners to various approaches to craft and career and consider how the two can sometimes work together. I'm Derek Webster, Senior Associate Director for Creative Careers at Yale's Office of Career Strategy, and it's my pleasure to reintroduce Ari Edelson, Yale Class of 98, an accomplished international director and producer that also serves as the artistic director for the renowned project developer, The Orchard Project. And welcome back. We are so lucky to have Ari Edelson on our uh, call again and, and coming back around to, to open up some of the, the channels we just barely scratched the surface on before. And, and uh, thank you for your, you know, taking the time to return and, and for this bonus episode. Well, thank you. And let's start us out. Just, uh, I mean, you mentioned, you know, your career has spanned, you know, a number of different, you know, channels, um, and one of those, and an important one, uh, is is the Orchard Project and and your role there and what you do there. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about about the kind of work that's done, the kind of, you know, uh, mentoring, and you know, um, uh, all the different aspects. I think our audience would be really interested to hearing a little bit more about that mission and and you know the the role that you play. Uh, well. The Orchard Project, in its origins, was a uh, was created as an institution to identify and support uh, dramatic storytellers creating work collaboratively, and that was the origins of it about thirteen or fourteen years ago. Understanding that in the United States there were very few places for that kind of work to take place. Uh, happily, there's actually become more you know more support for collaboratively generated dramatic work. Uh, in the United States, and, and we're really lucky that that's taken taken place. And as our artistic community has grown, the number of areas of dramatic storytelling we've grown to support have increased as well. So the Orchard Project now supports everything from straight plays to musicals to dance shows to television projects to audio projects uh, to digital theater. Uh, and you know, we we coming out of COVID, we supported the creation of a magic show that was on zoom that ended up becoming a full run at american repertory theater right wow. during you know during COVID, and so the definition of of supporting and uplifting and identifying voices that we would like to provide community opportunity and accountability to as resources uh has you know has been a calling card for 13 years in a pre-COVID time, that really meant we provided residencies and time and space and uh, and physical support to a lot of work to generate. You know, we are a place for risk. Coming out or through COVID, I think that we've embraced the digital platforms that exist as opportunities to expand the impact and expand the numbers of storytellers we're able to work with. Uh, and uh, And that has meant that we're still trying to create community but we're just doing it in a slightly different way, right? And instead of having 12 intense days in a laboratory uh, sprint with us, you might be working with us over the course of eight weeks on the pilot for your television show. Uh, and then we've, you know, we've tried to pivot with the time and also with the unmet need that the artistic community is seeing and uh, trying to get their work to market and to the rest of the world. That's great. Um, we will uh, drop a link to Orchard Project in our in our show notes for those who are interested in learning more about that as well. Um, and I don't think anyone's going to check in on this program without having an interest and and they're you know probably clamoring for for your take on 
current status of the, the theater world, um, New York specifically, uh, COVID, post-COVID, um, what, what, what's, what's the 101 version of that that we can sort of uh, provide a little bit of context? So, okay, well, today it's Friday, October 8th at 12.09 p.m. Because <laughs> it changes that much, right? Yeah. Because it, it, might, it might change in an hour, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we are still in a moment right now where the existential threat to performance in the United States is very, very tangible. And uh, there will be uh, an appetite from audiences and makers to be meeting in common environments and telling stories and sharing stories uh, in a way, once again, very soon. And we're starting to see it bubble back up. But this, in my opinion, where, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be an equilibrium that we have to hit probably over the course of the next 12 months or so before performance really comes back to the level of excitement and activity and energy uh, that we had back in 2019. Um, you know, television in the episodic world, which the Orchard Project is also involved in, had an interest, has a different interesting challenge at the moment right now, which is there's a clamoring appetite for content. Uh, but what happened uh, at the beginning of the pandemic was that there was this big stockpiling of writing content. And now we're in this position in which there's sort of a backlog of content to produce and challenges with actually getting production to be scheduled with enough venues and exactly and, yeah. the right way that everything can be made with enough venues with enough oh with enough directors for your television show with enough actors who are namey enough to sell your show and allow it to cut through the noise or actors who are actually just you know undiscovered and amazing unidentified and unrepresented talents where we all want to kind of follow the wonderful journey and points of view of these uh, underrepresented voices, which is a huge, exciting moment across all of these storytelling mediums right now. Audio is interesting because audio during this time, even though audio as a dramatic form has been around <laughs> since War of the Worlds and Orson Welles, everybody seems to have only discovered it, right? And at least in the United States, unlike the UK, where it's actually been part of the cultural parlance for a little while, um, the United States is actually really coming into terms with the fact that there is this form where for one fiftieth of the cost of television, you can tell some really exciting stories and you can reach wide audiences, develop really exciting, really nuanced constituencies uh, that are really committed to the storytelling that you want to tell, that want to remain involved. And, um, and so this, this, is a very interesting and exciting thing yeah. for that. And th there's a sense of this established, um, you know, kind of a bleed of talent that happened over the last, let's say, two years um, by requirement. You know, theater shut down. I'm, I, I'm a writer. I'm an actor. I'm a producer. And, and looking in these other directions, these exciting new directions. Um, will that be, in your opinion, ultimately to the, to the continued detriment of the theater? communities or will it eventually be something that causes more give and take more share of talent more i mean i, I almost think of it back you know rewind back to when there was such a wall between television and feature and even the you, you were either a tv writer or you were a feature writer you were either a director of one or the other and then you know things like streaming and first first you know, even things like cable TV, HBO, right? Like changed everything. And then you have streaming and Netflix changes everything again. 
there's been something of a growth in the talent pool and an expansion and an evolution of the kind of content that we have. We were just talking about the golden age of TV, right? Like, in, and it's actually lasted for a while. Um, do you think it's possible that the talent bleed that has happened in the theatrical side of things might end up being conducive of a broadening and an expansion and, 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 and something akin to that in the long run? Or, 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 or do we need to stay more pessimistic about it? I think that for every so here, this is this is a really good question, Derek, because I think for every bit of pessimism I have, I have an opposite bit of optimism, right? So yes, it has been really hard for theater artists to make a living for the last two years. Um, yes, uh, there's a real challenge with a playwright, uh, in particular, putting a play into the universe right now and understanding where that play might get produced. But in the same respect, there's also theaters finally actually realizing that they need to create a greater bit of self-care for themselves as institutions and also for the community of artists that they're supporting and rewarding them more financially. So hourly wages have been going up within the theaters. And you know, and there's been a lot of effort sort of realizing that we have that that the community has to live up to its own missions and visions in a much better way to support the artists who are among its midst. Uh, plural, um, in a better fashion. Another version is, yes, while it's been actually really difficult for actors to audition for plays at the moment, there is a digital wall that got broken down. That means that now, I just, you know, I just directed a show this summer in Arkansas, and we did all of our auditions on Zoom. And by doing all of our auditions on Zoom, which is not normal and not the way that things used to be, it meant that people could audition from anywhere. And if that continues, that means that an actor could build a life in a city other than New York City. And they could audition for things living in Pittsburgh, living in St. Louis, living in Tampa, living in, you know, Austin with no detriment, you know, with no, you know, with no disadvantage to somebody who was actually in, in New York City. And what that might mean for the regional theater world of allowing New York City and LA to possibly break their stranglehold on talent um, and allow, allow artists to have more livable existences in other places around the country might actually be a wonderful thing. So I'm actually, ve I'm very optimistic about some of the other knock-on effects of the absolute disaster <laughs> of the last two years that we've encountered because actually kind of the the things we've had to rebuild might be better, right? It might be better in that regard. There might actually be a bunch of actors who decide to live in Little Rock. I mean, that's good to hear. It's I, mostly, I, th I think I was framing it in the sense of uh, the, the disaster part is is easy to see. Um, it's unavoidable at, at, at this phase, but but you know the the green shoots, the sense of you know what 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 trends or even you know subliminal sort of something in the background that might actually be growing without us paying attention. Those are the sorts of pieces that I think are helpful to be able to identify. As I'm sure there are in many other industries, right? There are people in the theater world who want to go back to 2019. Yep. You know, I'll call them the preservationists. Right. And then there's the future thinkers, the people who are saying, it's not, we're never going back to 2019. What can that be? Right. And I think that it, it, it is an opportunity for the future thinkers to hopefully, uh, push us all a little bit to come up with new opportunities. And I think when we get to also questions about 
living up to our ideals better and creating better spaces for each other, uh, mixed with the disaster and the challenges and the scarcity, there also becomes this real opportunity to, you know, I don't want to steal the term from Biden, but to build back better, right? And to say, okay, where within each of our various buckets or pockets or domains have we been rate limiters? Like where have I, even just at the Orchard Project, for instance, where have I been a rate limiter and kept the Orchard Project from growing? And if I could figure out an answer to that question, right, a way to address my rate limiting nature and make yeah. more space for other people and thus could then create capacity and greater capacity for more artists, that's actually going to be, I think, the way that we really bring these various industries to a new level post-pandemic and where the real opportunity is, where you don't think, okay, there's still only going to be six slots at that theater. Now I have to fight with more people, including a backlog of work uh, from two years of not producing at that theater. Instead of having that mentality of scarcity, why don't we actually say, why is that theater only doing six shows? How do we make it possible for that theater to do 12? And if we can have a spirit of abundance, Right. If we can really sort of impart a spirit of abundance and a joy of figuring out how we can all increase capacity, yeah. then the pie just gets bigger. And that's, I think, the real spirit that I'm hoping to <laughs> try, to, try <laughs> to hold on to in, the, in, in, in my own existential crises over the course of this moment. Let's do that. We'll hold on to that piece. That, that I, I like that end of the answer. I mean, I, both ends are, are very helpful, but I, I, I appreciate that end of the answer. I think it's helpful. Um, so forward thinking, future thinking, you, you know, um, we talked about audio and, and, and some possibilities in those directions. You know, some of the, the bleed has actually also happened in the direction of um, virtual reality and blended reality and new thoughts on you know, what is space and what is virtual space and how does it, and there's a, there's an easy, again, a knee jerk sense of decrying those things that move us away from the tradition of theater that we all know and love and, and the history behind it. But there's room, right, for the exploration of, of these new boxes and sometimes intangible boxes. Um, and, you know, there's also like, there's, there's, there's the gaming world and, and voice acting in that direction and the narratives that keep getting better and, and more interesting, you know, down that path and actually happens to be the largest by capital industry of any perform entertainment, you know, a venue in the, in, in the world. So let's talk a little bit about that, that side too. Like, you know, new, new formats, new thoughts, new ways of the same skills and passions that has helped theater so much potentially branching out. Um, what are you excited about or, or, or have, have thoughts about in, in those directions? Well, I wish I knew more, first off, um, about the, some of the forms that you're talking about, but there's a term called the narrative designer uh, that exists within the gaming space. And uh, there's a huge appetite for storytellers in this space, people who are trained in storytelling. And the, the belief that, you know, the belief that has always anchored the Orchard Project, and maybe it's just a survivalist belief that actually believes that if we don't hold on to these people, they will run away, is that we have to create destinations for artists to explore the stories and the forms that they'd like to explore. And that might mean that we have to be nimble about the verticals or media that they choose to do it. Um, I think that that is something that I do see happening more often. I see theaters deciding that they're going to produce audio projects 
I see that, quite frankly, there are theater companies in the United States that have larger development budgets than a lot of small production companies in L.A. They could be developing as much television content as those companies could if they wanted to, or independent film content if they wanted to. Now, it is a different skill set. It is a different distribution mechanism. Um, so there are challenges that come alongside it. But the United States has been this country where you've had a theater industry based in New York City and a television and film industry based in LA, right? And now, partially because of digital tools um, that have come out of the pandemic, those boundaries of space have broken down. And they have also been joined by other forms that you're talking about, gaming, AR, VR, and audio. And if I were if I were a young storyteller during this time uh, and entering into the market at this time, I would realize that joining one of these buckets does not mean that I am excluding the others, right? That's an important thing to realize is that you are not necessarily saying, oh, I'm going to become a film. I'm, I'm going to become a film writer. I'm never going to have the chance to make theater. And I always loved theater. This is actually the wonderful time of portability of talent and a wonderful time where Going back to what we were talking about in the first half, if you can actually really think about your point of view, and as an artist, really, really working on your point of view, and uh, you know, some people might nastily call it your brand, that actually is truly portable, right? You actually say, well, wow, I'm Neil Gaiman, and I can move from this space to this space to that space in a way. Or I'm Fred Miller, and I can move from comic books to this space to this space in that way. And um, and audiences are consuming, they're consuming content. And I, you know, you can use that as a, as a derogatory term for art of the storytelling nature, but they're consuming it and they don't, they don't care which form it comes in. Right. Like, I, you know, I, like when I'm deciding what am I going to do in my evening, I am not saying, Oh, I, I really, really, really care about Netflix. No. I care that I'm going to be going to find the best story that I can find on whichever channel it's going to be on. Which might even include a channel in my earbuds when I'm on my way to work in the morning, it, which is a whole different way of talking about content and consumption, but doesn't erase the questions of quality and thoughtfulness and expansive universes and all those things. Yeah. Right. So I think our desire as humans to connect each other through story and to um, use storytelling as an opportunity to educate ourselves and to dream. And quite frankly, as relates to the great dramatists of our times to have catharsis by proxy, um, that need to have that catharsis by proxy through storytelling is a need that will not go away. And that audiences are going to be seeking opportunities to do with as little obstacle as possible. So the question for any of us storytellers becomes, how do we actually put our stories in as many places as possible so that they are present to those audiences? So how about yourself personally as a, as a creator, as a creative, um, which of these new kind of expanding pot, you mentioned audio and you have a few projects in those directions and please, you know, tell us more about that if, if that'd be helpful. Um, but you know, uh, what, even if underexplored, like which of these new venues sort of, get you know gets your hackles up in terms of thinking energetically in these directions Derek, this is where you're gonna this is where you're gonna or somebody listen to this might judge me but 
uh, your the, <laughs> the, cha- the challenge is I actually probably if I didn't have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old I would probably be really deep into the gaming universe and trying to learn more about it but I of course <laughs> I of course can't because of the dangers that I might actually drag them into um, uh, uh, so so that's 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 an area that I'm actually really interested in and almost have to like I kind of peek at it yeah you know two o'clock in the morning to try to learn a little bit more right. about it uh, the now I, we're back I, to the upside down that that dangerous upside down world <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> But I, yeah, but I do think, you know, I do think that, um, sort of understanding all of these areas is, is, is becoming more and more key. I think understanding that you may, and this is, this is also the difference in this moment versus say a moment five years ago is you may now initiate a story and not know what media it may actually manifest itself in and have to remain very nimble to see it to market. Understanding these different verticals is really important on behalf of storytelling. I wonder if that, in a sense, I mean, you know, there, there's a base point of development, early process, building, you know, characterization and universe and understanding those sorts of pieces, which in, in some formats get super accelerated, right? Like, no, no, we need a pilot. We need a script. We need, you know, we need something that we can even show. I wonder if that nimbleness, you know, might take some of us creatives back in the direction of it you know, more fully embracing um, what used to be sort of the long work and, and, the, and even, the, even the dredging work of actually putting the time and effort into understanding the core of the story, the core of the characters, the core of the voice in a way that, you know, creates nimbleness, creates, oh, of course, I could, I, could write the, I could write this in a whole new format because I understand these characters and their world so well. Do you think that, that there's a part of that? So I, I, if I would rephrase your question, you're saying, are people going to be long writing three and four hour long plays coming out of this? Are they, are they, is that, is it, is it a question? Are they going to be writing longer plays or shorter plays? No, that- no, 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 no. That they'll spend more time in the actual development process, the, the, the meta process of like what comes before the actual draft, what comes at before the actual script on page, which sometimes gets super accelerated, right? There's certain industries that, you know, the churn of just getting, you know, here's the next story, here's the next thing that we're going to jump into. Do you think like that, the, the benefit of nimbleness of multiple outlets might have writers and creatives thinking long game in terms of making sure that they really do understand their characters and their worlds prior? Um, yes, I, I do think that that might be the case. And so now, now that I understand the question, I definitely agree. But I, I actually will give you another example of something that's interesting, which is um, there are these two wonderful uh, uh, wonderful theater makers that form a company called Fake Friends, which uh, they generated actually coming out of the Yale School of Drama a few years ago. Uh, and they're contemporaries of the playwright Jeremy O'Harris. Uh, and these guys, I, I was actually just having a conversation with them last night on a panel that I that we were leading. And they came up with this fantastic piece that had a very small production before the pandemic. And that piece then actually resurfaced as a digital production during the pandemic. And now that piece is actually looking at resurfacing as another live production after the pandemic in a very different shape and as a television project after the pandemic. And I think what you're also going to start to see is you're going to start seeing multiple iterations of things, Mm -hmm. finding a way. And that person, almost like the record artist and the music artist who releases the album through drops of singles over time 
I think you're going to, I think that technology is going to allow us to drop with a greater consistency and cadence and allow audiences to also be part of the developmental process in a way that they hadn't been before. Because what we're not talking about is that actually a lot of development process happens behind closed doors, right? It happens in a little bit of a bubble. And I think that particularly for younger artists and uh, for work that's pivoting between form, there's actually kind of a, an embrace of allowing things to have a trashy aesthetic and be exposed a bit, have a few words mm -hmm. on them and actually develop in front of people. Let's release, right. you know, right. and that, right. and, and that's actually going, I think going to be a trend that we start seeing more of the TikTok mm -hmm. video that then becomes an episode. Right. Right. Or within the music industry, right? That there, not only has there not been a, such things an album for a while, but just like you're saying, it can be, it can be a TikTok drop of a song that, you know, ends up being just, just a, a playful introduction to see how people respond and to see, you know, yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Back to that television show that I was talking about before, We Are Lady Parts, this British comedy. It, two years ago, was a eight minute short movie. Uh, that another organization had commissioned called the Black, uh, right? And it was the, it was a short film, and its conversation with the audience actually offended quite a few people that watched it in some very interesting ways. And uh, I encourage people to look into it. But it actually embraced the controversy and the the relationship that it had with its audience, and it used that when it actually became a season of television, because wow. that relationship of the subject matter to audience became something that the girl band in the show had in the series and then i you know i'm just thinking about that as an example of something that iterated yeah. in that way yeah and, and this is no different than anybody you know anybody in the tech universe would you know would see through uh a startup mentality beta testing, yeah beta testing and iterated through a mvp and you know but in the theater world we just to think oh we have to make the show and the show has to go up on a stage. But this idea of there being an MVP, right? And that MVP being a night at Joe's pub in New York City and a concert production or something at the Yale Cabaret as the first MVP and then actually building upon that and iterating is something that the I think the theater world is embracing as well. Yeah. So one other piece I wanted to pick up, we've, we've kind of, um, we've touched on it a few times, you know, in our first talk and also, you know, for today. And, you know, my one, I'm wondering a little bit, um, your, you know, the artistic director side, as well as being a producing director, you know, a producer and a director, like within theater and, and in other formats as well. Um, can we talk a little bit more about that balance and how, how you keep yourself active and committed to the practice aspect of being a creative, even though you're spending a lot of time facilitating and administrating and finding money for um, all of these these other kinds of projects, which there's such a creativity in that. So I don't want to make a line between like what is practice versus practice. Um, but how do you balance that? And how do you keep yourself moving your own independent projects forward or even in, moving them forward in concert with what you're doing? on a mentoring level? The honest answer is not as well as I'd like to. Um, and uh, I think that one of the one of the things that I'm learning uh, and humbly learning is that you have to create really, really clear lines. Um, you have to be a little bit, you know, one of the things I'm trying to be better at is learning 
when to say no and how to articulate that something should be a no, right? Because I think that actually the process of learning how to say no to things then sets yourself up to create good boundaries for the work that you'd like to do over here and the work that you'd like to do over there. And, um, and that allows in the, in the circumstances of my balance between my calling to, to help artists in the nonprofit universe versus my own practice as an artist, uh, also to make ends meet. A huge amount of it is also managing about managing other people's expectations of me. Saying, okay, this is where I have to say, okay, my expectations, I'm not going to meet your expectations of me in this world if you ask for X. And so you have to be a little bit more clear on what the word, you know, what the word no means. Um, some, you know, some people, uh, might say that the difference between mission and vision is mission is what you aim to do and vision is a clear distinction of what you never do, right? So you know, oh, I never do that. And actually having a real clear vision, a definition of that is important because then you can understand, well, that's not going to take up the bandwidth. That's not going to sort of take up the space. And I can say, oh, the Orchard Project shouldn't be in the business of this. The Orchard Project shouldn't be in the business of that, even though our artists may be desperate for us to fill a particular unmet need. And there's no end for the appetite of the community of artists we have. But when we learn how to say no, we're not only doing it so that we can then go do the other things, we're actually doing it so that the expectations are set on their side clearly and transparently right. so that they also know that they will be, you know, that this is the place for them to do X, Y, and Z and not Q. And that's, I mean, that goes back to previously we, we talked about honesty, right? And that, that includes honesty to self, to understand your capacities and your bandwidth and honesty with others to share those decisions and, and you know, uh, those elements that you've landed on yourself. Yeah, but you're hitting a particular, you know, this is a, this is a point for anyone who's, uh, you know, anyone who I know who's sort of in similar positions to me, that balance is a real challenge. And I think the only real pathway through it is having a, a transparent and humble attitude to understanding that you are not always going to make everyone happy. <laughs> that's that's an important and, and not necessarily easy thing to, to absorb. So thank you for that. Um, so uh, anything else you want to hit on? Anything else you want to share with our audience before we uh, skip out for today? I think we covered a huge amount. One, you know, one thing that we've hit on as a fairly consistent theme is community, but I think another consistent theme that at least I see in the artists that really excel within the communities, and I don't mean excel financially or status-wise, but just actually find more community, more collaborators, is this real, real balance of humility and curiosity and, um, and understanding that we, you know, that none of us are perfect. And none of us know everything. And part of the fun of, you know, part of the fun of doing this is actually meeting other people and learning alongside them. And so if I could, if there's only one other thing that I could throw into the mix, which we really didn't touch upon that much, is just how important that curiosity is to lean back on, particularly when you get stuck and, you know, and when you, when you go, what's next? What am I supposed to do next? Where am I, who am I supposed to meet next? Where am I supposed to take this thing? And the answer, just goes, remain curious. If you remain curious, those answers will present themselves. That is a, a fantastic way to close this off. Um, Ari, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure. Both of our conversations. And again, we look forward to future collaborations. Um, 
And uh, yeah, uh, that's that's it for today. Um, we'll be coming back um, with with new programming in the future. But between now and then, until next time, don't be afraid to use the word career, but always stay crafty. Thanks. Thanks.